Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. The Essentials of Faith is what we're uh, studying this, this summer, and uh, we've been doing this for one, two, three, four weeks. This will be week number five now. We're, we're, we're focusing on these essentials of the faith, uh, not because, oh, it's time to preach about them again, but because the truth is that championship teams are built uh, on, on teams that focus on the essentials. It's, it's just the case that those who focus on the essentials become successful. And because the church of Jesus Christ in America has not been much um, uh, in the way of a winning streak lately, we're going to, one more time, this congregation, focus back on the things that are the core of who we are, the core of what we believe, the ground of this religion of ours, and the rock on which we stand. That rock, if simplified to its, to its most basic single Uh, element is Jesus himself. But if all we say is the word Jesus and put him on a bumper sticker, nobody nobody knows what we're talking about. If all we have is a bracelet around our arm that says WWJD, people don't know who JD is. And uh, and so we've got to help some folks come to understand, us included, who it is that we mean by this Jesus and what it is that that he's doing in this world. And so as we as we drill down one more time to the to the bedrock, to the foundations of what we believe, um, we, we we find it necessary to shorten this thing because people have literally filled libraries around this world with what it means to be a Christian. So if we want this thing to be simplified enough that you can understand it and, and, and remember it and understand it well enough to be able to talk with your friends, then we've got we've to crunch this thing down. And some people have tried to do that historically. They've given to us these statements of faith that are called creeds. The shortest, the most universally used among God's people is the one called the Apostles' Creed. In its, um, in its complete form, let's say, it, we, we probably only find it... Um, appearing about as late as the year 700 AD. In its earliest form, we find it uh, as, as early as 140 AD. So Christians, almost since the very beginning, have been saying, you want to know what I believe? This is what I believe. So I would ask you, if you would, to just stand with me one more time, and let's confess our faith together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence, he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So there's this uh, kind of stripped-down version of the faith. It's really what the creeds are trying to do. They're not trying to express the faith in its fullness. They're trying to express it in its simplicity so that we might be able to remind ourselves, be further grounded, and then be able to introduce other people to it. But if this is the most stripped-down version, I think we've got problems because it's still three pages long, right? Wordy, like Christians tend to be. What if... What if we could still be faithful to this, uh, this, this truth, this, this faith that is rooted in Jesus Christ? What if we could still be faithful to it 
and strip it down from three pages down to, oh, about this much. Would you be interested? Because I know some of you are, are kind of new to the creed. Some of you have been reciting it from the time you were kids. Some of you guys are trying to, to learn it now, and we've said it enough times that you kind of get the rhythm of it, and you see that there's Father, there's Son, there's Holy Spirit, there's Church. These, but but what, what is the order of the phrases and all of those things? How, what if we could shrink it down to just a couple of statements? Still be faithful to Jesus. Still be faithful to the, the faith of our fathers. Would you be interested in us taking it down to the bare bones? It's, it's, it's not a hypothetical question. It's not a rhetorical question. It's a yes or a no. If not, I mean, if not, we'll just spend the rest of the hour citing this and we'll learn it, okay? But, but what if we could? If we could, like, take this thing down to where you, over, um, over the 30-second walk across the parking lot at work, could answer a friend, well, here's what I believe. Would you be interested in having something that's that size that you could work with? Because I believe that we can, based on something that I've read in the scriptures a number of times. We're at the section of the creed that deals with Jesus and what it is that he has done for us. We started out learning about God the Father Almighty. Then we started learning about who this Jesus is, this God-man, both God and man, uh, uh, born of the virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit. We wrestled with all of that stuff last week. But, but yeah, okay, we get who he is. What is it that Jesus has done? What kind of a difference does Jesus make in this world? That's the section of the faith, of the faith and of the creed that we're, that we're arriving at this morning. And it's that section that says, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. We're going to stop right there because there's uh, all kinds, and no, sorry, and and on the third day he rose again from the dead. We're going to stop right there. Before we get to the ascension, we're going to deal with that next week. It's it's better news than you can possibly imagine. But this week is, is quite frankly, the nuts and bolts, the real shoe leather of the gospel. You know what I mean by the shoe leather of the gospel? We've got the gospel. We've got these ideas. But if all it does is sit on a shelf somewhere or float around like an idea, it makes no difference for anybody in the world. But shoe leather is where the weight and the friction come, where this thing actually gets down into the dust and the dirt and, and gets some grab so that we can walk on it and be propelled forward. And the shoe leather of the gospel, where the rubber meets the road for you auto enthusiasts, is right here in these few lines of the creed. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. Now, before we can deal with, before I go on to deal with what I think is the real essence of all of that, we've got one phrase that we just kind of have to wrestle with this morning. You may have noticed that on the first page of the creed as we were reciting it, the last line said, he descended into hell, and this Sunday it appeared in brackets. Did you notice the brackets? There's a reason for that, okay? Um, You know, it would be really convenient if God just dropped, like, you know, tablets out of heaven that had everything you need to know, and we had the originals, and you could just preserve them and hang on to them, and everybody could fact check against that first original thing. We don't have those, okay? But there's a religion that claims that it does. It's not us, Okay? We don't. We have this this very human thing. I mean, God's been at work revealing himself to people down through time, and we have not been very good at hanging on to original copies of of things that he tried to communicate to people. And so we just have to, to admit that our faith has developed and changed some over time. Now listen, it doesn't make it undependable. 
It just means that we have to do the hard work of studying and, and being honest about how we've learned and grown and how the faith has changed over the years. And from time to time, going back as early as we can to saying, well, what are the real foundations? This phrase, he descended into hell, I've, I've singled out before we deal with anything else because uh, it's difficult. The, the reality is this phrase in the, um, in the Apostles' Creed didn't show up very early on. I mentioned earlier when I introduced it that the, the kind of the final form of the creed that we have right now appeared maybe as late as the year 700 A.D., and that we had some very early forms of it as early as, uh, as, as the year 140. There's a lot of time in between there for development and change, right? This phrase, he descended into hell, was not in the earliest few or several forms of the creed that we still have a hold of today. It showed up about the middle of the third century, and, even, and then not very consistently. It was fairly late. They're almost about the year 700 before this phrase we find was a regular part of the creed. Well, that's, that's important because um, it tells us that in the, in the beginnings of, of our people trying to reduce the faith to a, to a few lines that are memorable, easily remembered, and so I can, I can nurture my own faith and so that I can share it with others, be an effective witness for him, they didn't consider that phrase to be essential to communicating the Jesus story. That's what that means. If the very first people, for the first few hundred years that they were saying, here's, here's an expression of the faith, they didn't have that line in there, it means that the earliest of our church fathers and mothers did not consider that essential to the faith. It's important that you just kind of wrestle with that. Now, we may have learned more since then. We have learned more since then. We may have been able to uh, survey the breadth of Christianity and what most Christians believe and been able to say, yeah, but here's this important thing that, that maybe was um, um, overlooked uh, or underemphasized in the beginning. But I have to lean on the weight of people who are smarter than me, who are um, more well-read than me, and here's just the reality. The most universally accepted forms of this creed outside the one that is espoused by the Roman Catholic Church, no longer include that phrase. They no longer include the phrase, he descended into hell. You know why? Because there's almost no biblical support, and some would say no biblical support for the notion that Jesus descended into hell. The, uh, the doctrine of his descent into hell that is espoused by the, by the Catholic Church um, as I mentioned, was a pretty late development, and it's based um, really on just two phrases, not even whole sentences, on, on two phrases that are found in our New Testament that some people uh, took hold of and then gave an interpretation to them that resulted in the doctrine. And even then, it was kind of on shaky feet until the painters in the Renaissance period got a hold of this idea and started painting lots of paintings that showed Jesus going into hell and preaching to these large audiences and then breaking their chains and leading them out of there. The two phrases are, uh, are found in 1 Peter chapter 3, hmm, I'm going to say, hmm, I don't know, verse 9. No, it's not verse 9. It's in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 9, and then somewhere else in 1 Peter 3.12 or something like that. Um, both of those phrases, I got to tell you, if you were told 
from the beginning. Now, this means Jesus went to hell. You'll read, the, you'll read the phrases and go, oh, Jesus went to hell. But if you just read them without any notion of that, you would not arrive at the conclusion that Jesus had descended into hell. These two phrases say that he descended, that the Greek in which they were originally written, the first phrase says, he descended to the lower earthly regions. The lower earthly regions. Does that mean hell, necessarily? I mean, it could be the, the lower part of earth, and as we kind of have envisioned that, you know, like three-tiered universe, that, that, that might imply hell, but it doesn't necessarily imply hell, particularly if you still have that kind of, that antiquated uh, cosmology, the view of the universe as heaven is up and, and earth is down from there, then the lower earthly regions are the earthly regions because they're lower than the higher regions of heaven. You, you with me here? Shake your heads up and, up and down if you understand what I'm saying, Okay. He descended the lower earthly regions. Another place, it talks about him freeing those who were in prison. Prison, hell, right? Well, maybe. I mean, I think prison's a pretty good analogy for hell. But remember that as we have taught the gospel all along, we have taught that people who live and are born on this planet, who still carry around their flesh and its temptations, and who uh, have not yet turned and, and to, to, to God and invited his his son Jesus to come and do his cleansing, redemptive work, who have not welcomed the Holy Spirit to empower them for works of righteousness. We believe that human beings born on this planet and still alive today are in chains and in prison to sin. And so that phrase that, that talks about him freeing those who were in prison might possibly mean that at somewhere in those three days between crucifixion and resurrection, that Jesus did descend into hell but we have no claim of that by any of the gospel writers who talked about his death, resurrection, and ascension. And we have two vague statements written much later in the century that folks say maybe it means he descended into hell. Okay? So I'm just going to tell you, when you look at the Apostles' Creed, when you're reciting it as this expression of your faith, it might be a good idea, I'm going to say, not to take the line out of there, but to put it in brackets. Because there's the least biblical support for that one idea out of all of the things that we say, this I believe, okay? Now, you want to learn some more about that? Um, you own the Google, so you know how to do that. Or you can come and talk to me or, or send me messages, however you want to do that. But if you want to learn some more reasons, because I can help you understand the support for it and also the arguments against it. But it's not the most important part of what I want to talk about today. I want to give the bulk of the time to this, okay? So he descended into hell. We'll just put that in brackets. But this other stuff that's in the, this section of the creed, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. Really is the very essence of what we believe. Yeah, but what about all that other stuff, Cliff? What about the other two pages in the creed? What about the church fathers and the councils and all those people who said, it's the whole thing, this, you got to believe all of this. What about that? Well, what about that? Um, I, I've been teaching it for the last few weeks like it's really important. I'm not about to back down from that now. It's just that when we get to these few lines and when we look at the scriptural support for this, we find that all of the voices of scripture, all the voices from, the, from church history in antiquity, and all of the voices in the church today are unified on these things. 
And we find that the Apostle Paul, the guy who talked more than Cliff Purcell, for crying out loud, the guy who wrote half of the New Testament, who wrote these long run-on sentences and these long single-sentence paragraphs, who went on and on and on and on about about things that happened in the heavenlies and and doctrinal things and church discipline and and morals. At, At some point, he just stopped and he said, let me break it down for you. Let me boil it down for you. Let me take this thing down to the frame or down to the bare bones. And it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So if you want to turn in your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to read a bit of it. Remember who's writing here. It's the Apostle Paul. He's the authority. He's the guy who once stood against the Christian church and sought to wipe it out and then turned around one day because Jesus knocked him off his horse and said, pay attention, son and got his attention, and got his affection, and got his loyalty, and freed him from his blindness, and also from his enslavement to sin, and then gave him a commission to go and become, and I don't think it's exaggerating to say, his chief spokesman in the early church. It's this Paul who's writing to a church in Corinth, Greece, that was messier than a soup sandwich, These people loved Jesus, and that's about the only thing they understood. Everything else about Christianity, they seemed to get wrong with great regularity so that Jesus had to write them and say things like, "Um, yeah, don't get in a sexual relationship with your mother-in-law. I mean, it it was that level of instruction that he really had to confront with the Corinthians, and to these people, these, these, these problem folks, his, his students who weren't coming along so quickly, who were forgetting everything that he ever taught them, at one point he goes, let's stop talking about all the things and let's talk about the very most important, irreducible minimum of the faith. And here it is. He writes, let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. In other words, I'm telling you again. Pay attention. Let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. Wink, wink, nod, nod. They weren't standing very firm, but he's coaching them here, building them up. It is this good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you. Unless, of course, here he gets kind of snarky. You believe something that was never true in the first place. Next slide. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. So Peter, uh, or Paul, remember, said, uh, Jesus interrupted my uh, church wipeout mission, got my attention, um, gave me new spiritual life and new eyes. And then he claimed also, at some time later, I didn't go then and study with the apostles and learn from them. Jesus himself appeared to me and taught me the true gospel. That's what he says. I passed on to you what was most important, and what had also been passed on to me. Here it is. Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried, and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. He was seen by Peter, and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James, and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as, as though I'd been born at the wrong time, I also saw him, for I'm the least of all the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way that I persecuted God's church. This is the word of the Lord. 
Luke, I want you to go back to that, um, to, to the previous screen, if you would. Yeah, right there. Take a look at this. I, I passed on to you what was most important, what all, had also uh, been passed on to me. Here it is. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried. He was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. And then he started appearing to people. And that looks like four things that are, that are the irreducible minimum of the gospel. You agree with me? Does that look like four things? I'm going to reduce it to two, to two, to two, because... Um, because something I'll show you here in just a minute. Paul, I think, is claiming that, that two things are important. He's, he's, he's telling us that the crucifixion was important, and then he mentions the burial. But the burial is the proof that Jesus had died. So I'm going to say those two things are actually one thing. It's the crucifixion and the proof of his death. Then he mentions the resurrection from the dead and that he appeared to a handful of individuals and to large groups and, and eventually to a group of 500 people and the, the appearances of Jesus after his resurrection are what? Proofs that he was alive. So my, uh, my proposal to you this morning is that the Apostle Paul, who was teaching the problem church, who couldn't remember the long form of the Apostles' Creed, quote-unquote, who couldn't remember whether things were immoral or moral, who couldn't remember all kinds of doctrinal statements, he said, you can remember two things, can't you? That Jesus was dead and it was proven, and that he was resurrected and that that was proven as well. Paul reduces the essentials of the faith to these two things, to the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, proven satisfactorily to that first century audience. And here's why he says these two things are important. We got to take a look first at the death of Jesus. And we're going to look at two passages of scripture that help us to understand what it is that his death meant or accomplished. There are a handful of um, records still existent from, um, from extra-biblical sources, from secular historians, let's say, that would give credence to the, the, the historic fact that Jesus of Nazareth was actually crucified on a Roman cross just outside the city limits of Jerusalem in Israel 2,000 years ago. The fact that he died isn't really disputed by scholars of antiquity anymore. But what his death meant is everything to Christianity. It's, it's the difference between this religion of ours actually having foundations and merit and value or it just being something that's altogether meaningless and frankly, a great ruse that's been worked against humanity. The death of Jesus, as we look at the New Testament, seems to have two very important interpretations or meanings. Let's take a look at the first one. It's this. Jesus' death on the cross was more than a Roman execution. It was actually a sacrifice for human sin. Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verses 11 and 12 say this. Under the old covenant, the priest, the old covenant's talking about the Jewish way of approaching relationship with God. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. Now, if, you, if you've been around Bible, church, uh, religious talk much, you're going, wait, 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 wait a minute. Didn't God prescribe those offerings? Didn't, wasn't, wasn't it God who invented Old Testament religion and told the Jews, you have to do it this way and you have to follow? Mm-hmm. That's what, the, that's what the Old Testament would seem to teach us. Well, here, the writer to the Hebrews is saying that that didn't work. 
Hmm. The consistent language in the Old Testament is that all of those sacrifices didn't take away sin, but covered it. It's this notion of, uh, let's throw, let's just cover it for now. Let's just, let's just throw a blanket over it. Let's, as such, sweep it under the rug with approval. We're not sneaking, but we're sweeping it under the rug, and it will be dealt with with a sense of finality later. Old Testament language for sacrifice is covering of sin. Writer to the Hebrews says, under the old covenant, priest stands with ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest, referring to Jesus, offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. There are a handful of other assertions of this meaning of of Jesus' death not being just an execution, but it being him literally offering himself like a lamb in the Old Testament model, but as the lamb whose sacrifice makes it possible for the sins of all of humanity to be forgiven. In this sense, Paul tells us uh, Jesus' death equals sacrifice, and the writer to the Hebrews says the same thing. But sacrifice isn't the only way that we understand the death of Jesus. If you look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, you'll see that it's, uh, it's kind of viewed in another way. How about that passage, Luke? Christ also suffered once for sins. That sounds familiar, like Hebrews. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Let me read it again. Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. See, the Hebrews passage has that idea of wantsness that works for all time, a sacrifice, a sacrifice that takes care of the purging of sins. Peter knew Jesus pretty well, one of his closest friends. He, he said, I'd rather not focus on Old Testament sacrifice. Instead, I'd like to, I'd like to talk to you about a substitution. I'd like to talk to you about one person taking punishment so that others don't have to. Um, Somebody deserved, lots of somebodies, deserved the penalty for all of their disobedience and rebellion against God. And because God is holy and just, the Bible seems to build this case that at some point, he's going to bring justice. All of the sins will not only be answered for, but punished. Can you imagine the weight of every wrong thing that you've ever done hanging out ahead of you, that at some point in life, you have to face it and you won't be able to lie out of it and you won't be able to squirm out from under it and none of your excuses will be believed. Where it's just you completely honest and your record complete in front of the just and holy God of this universe. That doesn't sound like a very good afternoon for Cliff Purcell or Dwayne Jones, Ken King. Put your name in the blank. The Apostle Peter, friend of Jesus, said, yeah, that doesn't have to happen. It doesn't have to happen for any who will look at Jesus and what he did in voluntarily accepting the worst punishment that the human race could figure out how to pour out. And we'll say, Jesus, will you suffer for me? And he will look back in history and say, he was innocent. He didn't deserve it. Why did he do it? He did it so that 
I don't have to be judged guilty and punished for my sins. Peter says, the crucifixion works like that. Now, which is true? Was Jesus' death a uh, sacrifice, like Old Testament kind of sacrifice? Or was it a prisoner, uh, convict substitution? The answer is, yeah, uh uh-huh. It was both of those things, because the New Testament paints that picture for us. We have the Hebrews passage, we have the First Peter passage, and several others. The death of Jesus is a sacrifice for human sins. It's also a substitutionary atonement. One guy steps in there so that the rest of them don't have to. And what we have figured out by reading the rest of the story is that Jesus' sacrifice and his substitution makes it possible for those of us who are a long way from God to have the gap between us and him closed so that now there is nothing that necessarily divides us from God. The gap has been closed, a bridge has been built, however you want to put it, the barriers between you and him, the hurdles on the track, all that stuff cleared out of the way, and you now have unabated access to the heavenly Father who stands there, not ready to judge, but instead like this, to welcome you as one who has been forgiven and who does not need to be punished because justice has already been taken care of. The death of Jesus Christ reconciles sinful human beings to a holy God and says there's no problem with that kind of relationship anymore. That's the good news of the gospel. The death of Jesus is a sacrifice, it's a substitution, and it reconciles people to God. Paul said it's one of the two most important things, one of the two very most essential. And the other, he said, was the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And if we look at Romans chapter 6, this is a longer passage, I want to read it to you. He talks to us about the meaning of the resurrection. Now listen, the death of Jesus, really not disputed by by many scholars. He died. Some dude named Jesus died in in Palestine 2,000 years ago. The meaning, the Christians have, have said, here's the meaning for it. The resurrection of Jesus, that's still argued about a lot by a lot of historians. We say, not only did he rise from the dead, here's its meaning. Well then, Paul writes, should we keep on sinning? I mean, he's he's talked about what a great thing Jesus has done in dying for us. So he, he makes it possible for us to be forgiven. Should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Wouldn't that be great? We could just keep doing all the wrong stuff and God keeps forgiving and he looks like a better God, right? Paul says, not so fast. Of course not. Since we've died to sin... How can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we were joined with him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. There should be exclamation points right there. Lots of them. So let me get this straight. Hebrews and Peter tell us about the meaning of Jesus' death. It wasn't just an execution. It was a sacrifice and it was a substitute. And Paul says, yeah, 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 yeah. We got all that about the death. But now let me talk to you about the most important part, about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And this isn't Jesus going, ha, 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 to the Romans. It isn't Jesus going, ha, 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 you thought you could stop me to the uh, Jewish aristocracy. That's not the meaning. Gloating is not the meaning of the resurrection. 
The meaning of the resurrection, as, as Paul tells us, is that all of those of us who join ourselves with Jesus, who hitch our wagons to him in baptism, we can find, just like Jesus did, a whole new kind of life, a whole new experience of life, a whole new quality of life in which sin doesn't own us anymore. He's not painting the picture that once you hit your wagon to Jesus, you'll never, ever be tempted. He doesn't say that. He doesn't even say you'll never, ever make a mistake again. doesn't say that. He doesn't even say you will not sin. But he says you will receive. You will experience. You will live an altogether different kind of life that is of the same quality and kind as the life that Jesus manifested when he resurrected from the dead and appeared to all of those groups proving that he was alive. The death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus both have a profound effect upon the lives of everyone who comes to know him and to love him, who receives him and says, Jesus, let's do life together. You're looking for an explanation of this Christian faith that cuts through the clouds of confusion and and reduces the libraries of the world down to something that you can talk about over coffee with your friends? Here it is. Jesus Christ died for our sins. He was resurrected from the dead so that we too might live a whole new kind of life. Listen, that's a pretty stripped down version of the faith, but it'll save you. Is there more? Yep, and your faith can be enriched by the more. But Paul, that guy who fought the faith and then fought for the faith, he said, it's all really right here. Yeah, but Cliff, what what about different modes of baptism? I don't know. Hey, Cliff, what about what's really happening in, in the Lord's Supper? I don't know. What about once saved, always? I don't know. What about predestiny? I don't know. What about free will? I don't I mean, I have opinions about those things. I, I can argue pretty persuasively for both sides of the argument, frankly. But I believe, you know, preponderance of the weight of Scripture sits on one side. But Paul said, no, 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 let's not talk about all that. Let's talk about Jesus and what he did for us and what he gives to us. Forgiveness, a freedom, a pardon, from punishment, and a whole new kind of life. This stripped-down faith will save you, and a fully formed faith will enrich your walk with him. But today, why don't we take just the bones, just the structure, just, just the strength of the gospel, and why don't we do two things? If, if you've already accepted this as the truth and you've come to experience that new kind of life, why don't you just give him thanks one more time for the simplicity of the beauty of this saving plan that really works. But if you today say, well, I've kind of heard all this stuff before, but honestly, when I lay my head on my pillow at night, I worry. Because I don't know about what would happen to me if I just met God today. Friend, I want you to know that you can strip away all of the other stuff and cling to this and find a full salvation and a complete reconciliation and reunification with the God who made you. This is the linchpin of salvation, the very 
essence of our faith for which we give thanks. Why don't you pray with me about it, would you? Close your eyes if you would. Lord, as we bow before you this morning, we thank you for a full and rich faith. The traditions that have developed around the faith sometimes cloud it, sometimes make it look really beautiful. The other doctrines that we read about in Scripture fill our minds with wonder and amazement and also challenge us. This morning, we give you thanks for an eloquent apostle who long ago said, let me just make it simple for you. Jesus died so you can be forgiven. And Jesus was resurrected so that you can have a whole new kind of life. Lord, there are people in this place today who say, I I, I get the forgiveness and I've been counting on that for some time. I really need a new kind of life. I need the resurrection life of Jesus to just start welling up inside of me. I need that to show up as well as the, the cleansing of my conscience has. Would you keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed for just a moment so I can just ask, is there anybody here today who's praying that prayer? I need, I need the new kind of life. I, I believe in this, but I need the new kind of life to, to start really showing up in my life. If, if you'll just raise your hand, I'll just pray for you. That's all. Yep, right back there. I see you. Yep. Yep. Anybody else? All right, Lord, you have one who has turned to you in faith, who has said, I believe and I accept the death of Jesus on my behalf. And I believe in his resurrection too, but I'm asking this morning that that would become the reality of my life. I pray, Lord, for this one, that your Holy Spirit would go and minister all the fullness of the resurrected Christ's life to him, to him. And I pray that the old things that characterized life before would grow dim and begin to fade away. And in their place would be the radiant glow of your life and your holiness. How about you do that for all of us? Why don't you make the resurrection life of Jesus the dominant force in our lives this week? I give you thanks for this salvation that folks like us can understand and share with our family and friends. So we praise your name for it. Amen. Well, my friends, I guess I can bless you sitting down, right? We usually end the service on our feet, but why don't you receive the fullness of the blessing of God, a bare-bones, stripped-down faith that will save you all the way. So may you know his peace this day. Amen. You are dismissed.